This is a Parks Canada production. Ce balado est aussi disponible en français. In November 2018, a devastating storm from the Pacific Ocean with hurricane-force winds made landfall on the islands of Haida Gwaii, the homeland of the Haida Nation. One of the supernaturals from the southeast set one of his minions out, broke the tops of a lot of these trees out, created a lot of tree throws. It felt like a tragedy, like one of the most sacred sites that I know on Haida Gwaii had taken some damage. The damage to the village site on Skungwai Island was shocking. Massive trees laid scattered around like pickup sticks on mossy ground, their roots exposed to the elements for the first time in well over a century. It looked like a total disaster. But in the face of tragedy, you can work something out to make the best of the situation. We are Fred Shepard, and you're listening to Recollections, the Living Landscapes of Skungwai. Parks Canada is known worldwide as a leader in nature conservation, but we do much more than that. Together with our partners, we commemorate the people, places, and events that have shaped what we now call Canada. Join us to meet experts from across the country as we explore the sites, stories, and artifacts that bring history to life. In this episode, we'll discuss injustices inflicted upon Indigenous peoples. Listener discretion is advised. For our Indigenous listeners, the Hope for Wellness helpline is available at 1-855-242-3310 or hopeforwellness.ca. Today, we're going to Guayhanas National Park Reserve, National Marine Conservation Area Reserve, and Haida Heritage Site off the north coast of BC to learn more about a new collaborative archaeology project on the island of Skungwai. This episode was made in collaboration with Guayhanas Cultural Resources Advisor, Camille Collinson, who, as a Haida citizen, has helped us understand and incorporate the rich Haida worldviews, as well as ongoing conversations about challenges and resilience in Haida Gwaii communities. But first, let's talk about the Haida language and the place names you'll hear throughout this episode. Haida is considered an endangered language, with very few fluent speakers left, but was once spoken throughout the islands of Haida Gwaii, which translates to Islands of the Haida People. Gwaihanas, the protected area, means Islands of Beauty, and Skungwai is Wailing Island. You've probably noticed a common factor. Gwaii, meaning island, is a very important word in this part of the world. Haida Gwaii is an archipelago, a chain of over 150 islands around 700 kilometers north of Vancouver and separated from the mainland by the shallow Hecate Strait. Guayhanas protects the southern two-thirds of the archipelago from seafloor to mountaintop. 
These rocky islands enjoy a lot of precipitation, and their temperate rainforests are covered in carpets of green moss and ferns, towered over by huge trees like Sitka spruce, red cedar, and hemlock. We will never do justice to describing the majesty of this place. Instead, here's someone who knows it well. Picture yourself in the middle of the Pacific Ocean right now, waves crashing all over the place, and you think you're lost, and you think you've gone as far as the Earth will provide you. And then on the horizon, a little rock sticks out of the ocean that the supernatural's left there. You get closer to that rock in the ocean and you realize it's a series of rocks in the ocean. And on that series of rocks in the ocean is this lush and beautiful forest and a Galapagos-esque style natural wonder and diverse ecosystems. And on that, for all eternity of time, the Haida people have existed alongside. And so, we are as much part of that forest and that ocean and the sky as the tree and as the eagles and ravens. And from the dawn of what we understand as existence, we have moved and worked with and worked alongside and been fed and, and have fed the ecosystem of this place. My name is My English name is James McGuire. I'm of the Gakiels Kigawe, Skadans Ravens clan. James works with the artifact collections at the Haida Gwaii Museum. Skangwai, once briefly known as Anthony Island, is located in the southwest of Haida Gwaii. It's home to the village of Skangwai Ilnagai, a UNESCO World Heritage Site. Ilnagai means village. This village has been evacuated since the 1880s, and what remains today are mortuary poles and remnants of wooden longhouses. Mortuary poles are red cedar logs carved with images of animals and supernaturals to honor a high-ranking person like a chief or matriarch after they've passed. The remains are placed in a burial box in a cavity at the top of the pole, which is raised to stand about 15 meters above the ground. You might be familiar with the term totem pole, but the Haida prefer talking about the specific type of carved pole, like mortuary poles, house poles, and memorial poles. I'm Paul Rosing. I'm from Skinnegate. My Haida name is Iwaji Ikhlina, which means wolfman in English translation. And my role is pretty much to give people as much information about the place. Paul is a guardian at Skangawai and was the first to return after the 2018 storm. He arrived to a scene of unrecognizable destruction. Hundreds of trees, many of them coastal giants, lay crisscrossed on top of each other, root systems ripped out of the earth, with some roots reaching as high as a three-story building. It was like landing on the moon, just to come out on the back beach and see that amount of trees down at once. It's, it felt like I was in a total different place. It wasn't the same anymore. A visitor shelter was completely flattened, and a boardwalk was dangling from the trees. It looked like the old wooden roller coaster in Vancouver. It's like, wow. But what a visitor might view as devastation, or James might see as a visit from a supernatural, an archaeologist recognizes as a unique opportunity. Skungwai is one of several Haida cultural sites open to visitors. Since the early 1990s, its poles have been visited by thousands. But out of respect for the village's importance, archaeology work has been limited until now. It definitely gives us a chance to sort of 
explore Skungwai in a way that hasn't really been looked at in the past. From an archaeological standpoint, Skungwai hasn't had any excavation units done in it, aside from when they straighten the poles. My name is Camille Collinson. I am a cultural resource management advisor for Guayhonas. Since the village was evacuated nearly a century and a half ago, tree roots have grown around the decaying floorboards of Haida longhouses. When the trees fell and the root systems were raised high in the sky, the floorboards were exposed, providing a glimpse into the history of this fascinating place. Here's Jenny Cohen, the lead Parks Canada archaeologist working at Skungwai. All in all, over 100 trees came down in and around the village, and we started an emergency archaeology program to salvage the vulnerable exposed artifacts. The result? The Living Landscapes of Skungawai Archaeology Project, a multi-year collaboration between the Haida Nation, the Haida Gwaii Museum, and the Government of Canada. Nature has created disturbance, and it actually allowed us this window to look in and see what is in the sediment. Skungwai is one of hundreds of villages that line the shores of Haida Gwaii, where the Haida people have lived for a very long time. Archaeologists have found evidence of human settlement from more than 13,000 years ago, but the Haida presence on the archipelago likely goes back even further. We spoke to the executive director of the Haida Gwaii Museum to learn more about the origins of the Haida people. <laughs> Good morning, my name is Jiskang. My English name is Nika Collison. I am Haida from the Kayathlanis clan. Today's Haida weren't, weren't the first iteration of human beings that Nankingai um, Yuan's taught us that the first time humans to be arrived, they came out of the air. And we didn't quite make it, but the supernatural beings were there. The second time we came uh, was out of the earth, and again, things happened. The Skanagwai were still there, but uh, we, we weren't the ones for today. And then the third time humans to be arrived was out of the ocean. And that is the people of today. We come, supernatural beings that came out of the ocean and over many generations became more human to bring us to today. To understand the human history of Haida Gwaii, a good place to start is with the dynamic interplay of land and sea on the archipelago and on the mainland of North America. Here's archaeologist Jenny again. In Haida Gwaii, sea levels were about 150 meters lower than modern at about 14,000 years ago during the last ice age. There's a lot of ice buildup on the continent, which actually kind of weighted down that landform. If you think about the Earth's crust under a molten core, it's kind of like a waterbed. So if you put pressure in one area, bulges up another area. So Haida Gwaii was kind of that area that got elevated. So relative sea levels here were much lower when they were much higher on the continent, which was being pushed down. As glacial ice melted on the continent, basically the continental landform rose in relation to sea levels. Haida Gwaii started falling because that pressure was taken off. 
at the same time, there's other factors like the amount of water in the ocean. So all this ice would have been locked up in the glaciers. When the Ice Age came to an end around 10,000 years ago, sea levels began rising as much of that glacial ice melted. They were actually transgressed and went about 15 meters above modern and kind of stayed there for about 4,000 years. And then over the past 6,000 years, they've been slowly dropping. The key takeaway is that over the millennia, sea levels on the islands have been both higher and much lower than where they are today. One constant through all these changes has been the presence of the Haida people. The Haida relied on the land and sea. An abundance of salmon, shellfish, and other sea life provided food security and allowed for healthy populations and long-term villages. They developed relationships with other First Nations up and down the Pacific coast, enabled by ocean-going canoes carved out of giant red cedar trees. Eskangwai, evidence of humans goes back a long way. Here's Camille with more. Human occupation on Skangwai dates back to 10,700 years. And in between then and the present, there are a lot of time gaps in between. It would be really interesting to see how we could fill in those gaps. As far as we know from Haida knowledge holders and archaeologists, Skangwai was used repeatedly as a seasonal hunting and fishing camp for the last 5,400 years. Somewhere around 100 AD, the village was built and continuously inhabited until the late 1800s. That's 1,700 years, over 10 times as long as Canada has been a country. It was a hunting site, so people camped there to begin with. And so they would hunt the sea lions, the birds, the seals, and probably the um, sea otters. The whole of the island's waters, very full of resources. Kiiljus hunted Kigaga. My Haida name is Kiiljus, and I am part of the Stawas Haidagai. That's the name of my clan. It's an eagle clan. Kiiljus worked in Guayanas for many years and has held various leadership roles within the Haida community. For three years, I was elected to the Council of the Haida Nation. So it was very nice. And I brought up different things that the hereditary leaders had asked us to do and, and looked at how we could make things better in being stewards of the land. Skangwai Ilnagai is on the east side of the island. It's a prime location for a village on a large bay protected by a small island about 10 meters away. Longhouses surrounded the main bay, allowing for easy canoe access in and out. A secondary bay to the south provided an alternate access when weather or tides were better on that side of the island. Paul Rosang and his wife Aretha Edgars are the watchmen at Skungwai. They spend five to six months of the year living at the village site and our traditional knowledge holders, explaining the village's significance to visitors. The Watchman program was developed to keep an eye on important cultural sites throughout Haida Gwaii and is based on a historical role in Haida villages. Traditionally, Watchmen were posted at strategic positions to raise alarm when enemies approached. If you look at the very top of Haida poles, there are often three human figures wearing tall cedar bark hats, the symbol of the Watchman. Paul described what life in Skangwai may have been like when the longhouses were filled with people. With the archaeology crew actually being there, 
it's kind of cool because you get all these paths that get worn. So people walking back and forth between different sites. So that gives you a real good idea of what it probably looked like when it was occupied. Like, And then to hear all that activity going on in the village, you know, it gives me kind of goosebumps right now. And that's what I try and tell my guests when you go there is to try and picture the place with 300 people there. So you've got kids on the beach running around, you've got people that are doing fish or prepping food, carving a pole, doing just daily activities. So it's, you'd imagine what it sounded like. That's what a village sounds like. Here's Jenny with an archaeologist's take on Skongwai village. So the village itself has 17 recorded house remains that are still visible and measurable on the ground. But through ethnographic records, there were 20 houses that were discussed and talked about. So they're known. The village has two rows of houses, one row that's closer to the ocean and then one that's on a back raised terrace and overlooking the bay. Uh, There's also a water reservoir, so a a waterway that runs through as a freshwater source. And to the south of the village, uh, there's this large flat area that's pretty clear, and that would have been a cultivation area for potatoes and tobacco. There's also remnants of domestic apples on site too, so in addition to the native crab apples. So there's various degrees of vegetation management, and there's still remnants of that on site today. In 1774, the first European ship, captained by Juan Perez of Spain, arrived on the shores of Haida Gwaii. This meeting led to a series of nation-to-nation trade relationships, first with the Spanish and then with the British, Russians, and eventually the United States. The Haida supplied Europeans with animal furs and artwork, like jewelry and carvings, while Europeans traded metals, guns, alcohol, and food like flour and sugar. One of the main trade items was sea otter pelts. A strong demand in Europe meant the Haida could negotiate high prices. Over the next few decades, sea otters were hunted nearly to extinction, which led to a domino effect on the marine environment, including a hyperabundance of sea urchins that were no longer eaten by otters. All those urchins ate a vast amount of kelp, a giant seaweed that forms an ecosystem known as kelp forests. In some places, the kelp disappeared completely, creating an urchin barren, something like an undersea desert. Today, with a little help from biologists, both sea otters and kelp forests are returning to Haida Gwaii. By the mid-1800s, other resources, like minerals, seafood, whales, and timber, became the focus. As Europeans met with the Haida, diseases like typhoid, measles, and smallpox began to spread throughout the archipelago. This, along with the collapse of the sea otter trade, led to a gradual decline of Skungwai's population. In 1862, the most deadly wave of smallpox swept through the archipelago and much of coastal BC. Here's Nika to describe this dark time. So before 1862, our oral historians have taught me that there was anywhere from 30 to 50,000 Haida. And so in 1862, colonists knowingly spread smallpox along the coast. This is documented by the colonists themselves, as is the fact that they withheld vaccines specifically from the Haida, from our people. When the illness is so thick in your village that there's a blue haze as people are dying, you can see it in the air. 
and you're being basically told you're not human. The survivors of Spangwai, there's only about 30 of them, which is less than a household, uh, left there and they moved up in the later 1800s because all the villages, all the main villages had to, the survivors had to join together in either or When people died off like that, I often talk about it being like a fire in a library. So think of your library downstairs and having a big fire and you had 30,000 books in some are manuscripts, some are just proposals, some are books of knowledge, some are periodicals, some are just textbooks or just stories. But that's what happens when you kill off people. You destroy their library, and that's what happened to us. And so when the haze dissipates, you're left with less than 600 people. In just a couple of generations, the series of epidemics decimated the Haida population, taking a horrendous toll on their culture and their way of life. The 600 displaced survivors eventually regrouped in two villages in northern Haida Gwaii, where the majority of Haida people live today. Another major blow to the Haida people came in the form of the Federal Indian Act of 1876. First, for thousands and thousands of years, the things we learned was because we're island people, ocean people. Our laws were all oral. They weren't written anywhere, but when you have a law in place for thousands of years, it just becomes a part of how you live with your land and your water. And because Europeans could not see our laws, they said we had no laws, so they put their laws on top of us. And they had the Indian Act, and that became part of how they controlled us and kept us in one place. The Indian Act was an attempt to assimilate Indigenous peoples across Canada into colonial society. It banned traditional cultural practices and languages and required families to send their children to residential schools. Many Haida children were sent to St. Michael's School in Alert Bay, about 500 kilometers away. On Haida Gwaii, reserves for the Haida were created around the two main villages of Skidigat and Masset, a tiny fraction of their homeland. The past system, which made it mandatory for Indigenous peoples to obtain written permission to leave the reserve, restricted access to most of their traditional territory and cultural sites. The rest of the lands and waters of Haida Gwaii were sold into private hands or appropriated by the government. The Indian Act is still on the federal books, but many amendments over the years have loosened the restrictions on Indigenous culture and restored freedom of movement around traditional territory. The years since have seen a resurgence of Haida culture, rebuilding connections with their traditions and language. Governments have also made major improvements in listening to Haida knowledge when deciding how to manage the lands and waters, including the creation of protected areas. In the 70s and 80s, logging was planned on Athi Gwai, then called Lyle Island, despite being part of an area proposed for protection. Fed up with government inaction to stop the logging, a group of Haida took a stand by blockading forestry roads. Things came to a head in 1985 
when 72 Haida people, including elders, were arrested. Eventually, an agreement between Canada and BC paved the way for protecting Guayanas under the National Parks Act. They got to a point where the feds wanted to make it a national park. And our people that were at the negotiating table said, we don't want a national park. We know what happens to people who live within the context of a national park and how they can't use the land. We want to use our land. It was kind of a turning point. These concerns were heard, and the result was the Guayanas Agreement, a commitment to protect the area while ensuring the Haida can engage in traditional activities throughout the lands and waters of Guayanas. When Guayanas was established back in 1993, it was established by the Government of Canada and the Council of the Haida Nation. So both parties argue that, no, I own this land, and they agree to disagree. And instead of arguing with each other about who owns the land, they came together to cooperatively manage this area. So we always sort of try to stay true to the Guayanas Agreement in that we make sure that we involve members of the Haida community because this is Haida territory we're standing on. And it's important to always honor that in our work and to always work in good faith with each other. The Guayanas Agreement is still in effect today and includes Skungwai as part of the National Park Reserve. Since 1981, Skungwai has also been both a National Historic Site and a UNESCO World Heritage Site. The first thing you see when you enter the main bay of Skungwai is a beach covered in pebbles, broken seashells, and sea-battered driftwood. The beach gives way to tall green grass and even greener moss, with cedar hemlock forests looming in the distance. Rising from the grass are dozens of weathered mortuary poles, featuring cascades of carved animal faces that tell stories of long ago. Behind the rows of poles are mossy depressions outlining the longhouses where the 300 villagers took shelter from the elements. A series of white clamshells placed on the ground form a path for visitors to keep a respectful distance from the fragile remains of Skungwai Ilnagai. Skungwai is just a beautiful showcase of Haida material culture, like the architecture and the art. It's also a showcase of the stories too, um, like the poles which are still standing, tell a great story of the people who lived here, like the clan stories and significant environmental events. The Haida consider this place more than a village site, since the remains of so many ancestors and their spirits reside here. Everyone seems to sense this deep importance. Many find it impossible to describe the experience of spending time at Skungwai, but two of our experts were willing to try. Oh, it's absolutely spellbinding. Kieljuice described her first time on the island. I came in on a little float plane, and I got off and you look up and you see these silverish things in amongst the green trees, you know, spectacular. Because I'd never been to a village, an old village that had poles standing. I brought my youngest son, he was two. I brought him with me and we spent the day there. Yeah, it was very special. 
The moment I, first time I've ever been a watchman there, just walking into that village, it's just a sense of, oh, I can't even put it into words. It's just a feeling you get when you're there. It's very welcoming. It's just a sense of belonging there, really. I've been there for so long, it's just, I call that my home. That's Paul again. He's been a watchman on Skangwai for over 15 years. He explained what Skangwai means in the Haida language. It's wailing island. It's a woman wailing, like crying. When things are just right, the wind makes the wailing sound when blowing through a hole in a rock. So the tide's got to be at the right level. The wind's got to be blowing the right way. So all these combination and all these different elements that have to be at a perfect but that's what it sounds like, is a woman crying at a distance. And I've only heard it twice. It, it's definitely somebody mourning. It definitely make your hair stand up. Part of Paul's role as a watchman is to give tours of Skangwai. So I'll just give you a lowdown in the village. Um, there was 20 longhouses here at one time, probably about 300 people. So if you look down in the bay, you can see it's a big horseshoe there with all those nice poles. But um, the, every all the poles you've be seen here are mortuary poles, so there's five at the time. The recent storm dramatically changed the village landscape, though work crews have since removed much of the debris. Amazingly, the damage to poles and house remains was minimal. Over 245 trees that came down in this one storm. So trees that are huge, like four or five feet at the butt, big spruce. So once one tree starts to grow, it's just a big effect. Like, it destroyed lots of stuff, but to not touch anything in the village, it's just kind of, you know, definitely makes you feel like something. somebody's watching over that place. This is like one of the few moments in my life where it literally took my breath away and it was hard to breathe. That's Jenny telling us about her first visit after the storm how much it had changed and how destructive it felt with all these trees lying on the ground with their branches just covering all these features and the, the poles were kind of drowned in this chaos of vegetation. The roots of these trees were lifted up and some of them were, you know, 10 meters tall, just towering over my head. It just, it made everything feel so small and so exposed and vulnerable. The Living Landscapes Project launched shortly after, aiming for a deeper understanding of Haida resource use and management over the millennia. The findings will guide the long-term goal of restoring the island's eco-cultural landscape. The team's initial focus was excavating the root balls that lifted the floorboards of two longhouses. A root ball is the root system of a tree, plus all the dirt and debris that came up with it. Much of the archaeological work has centered around House 10. We just call it House 10 for short, but it has a name and it's called People Wish to Be Their House. So these houses all had names in the village and not all of them are remembered, but this is one of them. So People Wish to Be Their House is kind of in the middle of the village. House 10 was a typical Haida longhouse. The beams and posts were made from large cedar poles and the walls, floor, and roof from cedar planks. The front featured a frontal pole with carvings of an eagle, a cormorant, a whale, and three watchmen keeping an eye on things from the top. A rounded door built into the bottom of the pole was the main way in and out of the house. 
An opening in the roof allowed smoke to escape from an interior fire pit. There were bunk beds and shelves throughout the interior, and food was kept beneath the house for cold storage. House 10's frontal pole was removed in the 1930s, part of a wider trend of outsiders taking objects from indigenous cultural sites. One reason for the Watchman program is to prevent this kind of behavior. Repatriating artifacts is an ongoing project for the Haida Gwaii Museum. Before the storm, the house it was really not that well-defined. You can see where there's multiple house beams from the roof, and they look just like moss-covered logs and a few standing posts that were leaning. At the time, everything was covered in moss. After the storm, the house remains changed quite dramatically. So at house 10, there are two tree throws that root balls that were in the house directly. And so these were basically exposed the sediment of the house floor. So what we did this past year was to excavate into that root ball. Standing next to this tree throw, the root ball, it's towering over my head. So we had to use a ladder to reach some of these higher uh, parts of the root ball. James, from the Haida Gwaii Museum, assisted and advised Jenny's team. I had gone down for a nine-day stint down in the field, so got kind of caught up to date about kind of the things that had been identified and providing context to things as they come out of the ground, providing a cultural understanding to what we're looking at, you know, the, the village that we're in. We have an opportunity in this one to do a little bit more bridge gapping in the knowledge between oral histories and technologies to identify where other older sites might be. The team uncovered numerous artifacts from House 10. One intriguing find was some Haida artwork, two fist-sized pieces of a jet black stone called argillite. Going back to these floorboards, I saw this rock wedged between the two and thought, well, okay, here's another firecrack rock. But then I took a closer look and there was this little groove, a little notch out of it was really unusual. And as I pulled it out, I saw that that groove was actually carved out and it was part of an eyeball that was carved in this little figure. And so we just saw the back corner of this eye and a little bit of the shoulder of this figure. And on that shoulder, there's really intricate detail work. The face was missing from this piece, though, and it looked like the rock had cracked off. It was one of those finds where it kind of took my breath away a little bit. Everything got really quiet and everyone knew something really cool was being found. And then the next day, there was this flat rock right next to this large sea mammal bone. And as we pulled it out, it revealed a nose and two eyes, and it fit perfectly with the back piece. Argillite is a type of sedimentary rock that's basically compressed clay. It's found on a single mountain in northern Haida Gwaii and nowhere else in the world. Today, the Haida have exclusive rights to the quarry. When polished, argillite has a uniquely beautiful black sheen. Over the past century, carvings by renowned Haida artists like Charles Edenshaw, Claude Davidson, and Bill Reed have been featured in museums and galleries around the world. With a broad aesthetic appeal, argillite carvings were an important trade item for the Haida. Here's James's take on the carving. There's quite famous argillite carvers that do come from Skungwai. Chief Nangsting was one of the last survivors of that village and ended up becoming quite a famous argillite carver. But argillite at the time of that village's height of kind of power, population, and prosperity wasn't like a widely practiced thing throughout all Haida existence. Argillite carving is a direct descendant of 
reacting to colonial empire control. The popularity of argillite carving comes from it being a deemed acceptable art form to sell at like a Victorian market. Another interesting find was a collection of seeds from edible berries and medicinal plants. Under the floor, too, there is, in these black silts, a couple concentrations of, like, really dense seed concentrations. So these seeds wouldn't have just gone there naturally. They're too large and too concentrated. It's possible that villagers kept a seed bank to grow plants for food and medicine. James suggested another possible explanation. Many different types of seeds, all in a layer stacked on top of each other, would have been berries or jams that were dehydrated maybe and then wrapped in like traditional kind of saran wrap, which would be skunk cabbage, and then layered up underneath in like a cellar system, <laughs> which is that right under the floorboard of the longhouse. Skunk cabbage is a wetland plant with broad waxy leaves. It gets its evocative name from the smell of its vibrant yellow flowers, attractive to pollinators with a taste for rotting meat. What I was thinking is that it's just stacks of berries that had been dehydrated and then would have been wrapped in skunk cabbage and then had the skunk cabbage, obviously, over 120 years disintegrated and just the seeds of the different types of berries had been left in piles and layers of different types. You know, stacking them in preparation for consumption over the darker months when they weren't growing, you know, and then just an expectation that you were going to be consuming them. You know, the sad thing is that they didn't got to be consumed. <laughs> there are other artifacts that speak to the time when Skangwai was home to approximately 300 people, including glass beads, pieces of metal, buttons, pipes, and bottles. Some would have been produced on site or nearby. Others were created far away, the result of a trade network that connected Haida Gwaii with Asia, Europe, and beyond. It's really fun to picture in different times, in different eras. I really love seeing a button that I could have on my blanket coming out of a floorboard in a longhouse. One of maybe my ancestors or one of my friend's ancestors could have been dancing in and it fell off and here we are today picking up. The newly recovered artifacts from Skungwai are being stored at the Haida Gwaii Museum for analysis and safekeeping. Over the next few years, the Living Landscapes team will conserve these objects and the field work will continue. We're looking at extending the excavation at House 10 so we get that, at that bigger picture of house activity. Uh, we're also looking at a couple of the other houses in the village that were impacted. The team also hopes to learn more about the earliest human history of the island. Going out of the immediate village and looking inland on these raised beach sites, when sea levels were higher, that would have been the shoreline and people might have been located in those locations. There is one of those raised beach sites that we have identified already and we've dated it and it's about 5,000 years old. So part of the plan is to go back to that site and do a small limited excavation and compare that with how people were living in these more recent times. When we're sifting through the floorboards and a glass bead comes up or a button comes up, you know, that would have been on a blanket during a potlatch, these are things that we do today. And when we're able to witness the continuity of culture and we're able to bridge those gaps between us, we don't feel so foreign. Colonialism made us feel foreign in our own territories. In a lot of ways made made everything that we did illegal in our territories. So we were meant to feel that way. So we're in this kind of era of reclaiming and reconnection and repatriation in our own minds. 
One amazing aspect of this collaborative project is the opportunity for everyone involved to learn from each other. I'm learning a lot from the Watchmen and local Haida about carving techniques, about oral tradition, like the knowledge of the people who have lived here in the past and their histories, so how the knowledge gets passed on and learning about maybe alternate uses. So you see a lot of historic items that were maybe trade items and they might have been repurposed, not in the way that it was intended by, say, Europeans who traded those goods, but then repurposed for Haida and their own interests. I'm excited to move forward from this year, having met the crew, having met the people that we're going to be working with. I'm excited to invite them into our facility and work with them to analyze the findings and build a more pointed timeline scientifically <laughs> to match up with our very detailed timeline with oral history. The collaborative nature of this project is reflective of the cooperative management of Guayhanas as a whole. When the Guayhanas Agreement was negotiated, it was the first of its kind. It works so well that today it serves as a model for newer, cooperatively managed sites across Canada. You know, it's not easy to work collaboratively a lot of times, but it, I feel like it's the most constructive way to work. Like, I think we do our best work when we do collaborate. It requires a lot of communication. Sometimes it requires some disagreements, but I think it's the most important aspect of our work is to ensure that we always collaborate with the Haida community. It's always so important to bring everybody together because we're all here for the common goal and that is to take care of Guayanas. One of the challenges of doing that is climate change and the rising sea levels that may be coming. The Haida people, though, are resilient. They've been dealing with huge sea changes on Haida Gwai for at least 13,700 years. One thing we can confidently say won't stand the test of time is the remains of the longhouses and poles at Skangwai Ilnagai. And that's part of the management plan. In keeping with Haida tradition, they will be allowed to return back to the earth. My thought process is that everything came from the earth, so it has to go back to the earth. And so that's part of respect and responsibility. The takeaway is to allow it to go back to nature, but Allowing non-invasive interventions to slow that process is okay. A lot of these structures are made out of wood. A lot of the material will decompose and it's not meant to last forever. We need to breathe more life into these villages as the reminders and the lessons of the past go back to their natural resting places. It's our responsibility, I think, to bring back new life to these villages and raise more poles, bring more life back, feast them throw new beads on the ground <laughs> for archaeologists 500 years in the future to find out uh, and see the, the continuity of our culture from 15,000 years ago but all the way down to today where we're coming out of a really dark period in our history. We have now an opportunity to shine some light on these areas that we hold so sacred. It's a beautiful, beautiful paradise for me. I see the beauty in spite of the woundedness. I know a lot of the stories, and it reminds me of the people who came before me and how blessed I am to be part of the land, the ocean, and the people. A visit to Guayhanas National Park Reserve, National Marine Conservation Area Reserve, and Haida Heritage Site is a bit of an undertaking, as any trip of a lifetime probably should be. 
The first step is taking a ferry or plane or your own boat to Haida Gwaii. There are several licensed tour operators who can arrange transport from there. Travelers require a trip permit and need to attend an orientation session to explore Guayanas and Skangwai. You can visit sites independently or with a guided tour. Trip options range from a single day to a week or longer and can include hiking, kayaking, and visiting cultural sites. The Council of the Haida Nation asks all visitors to take the Haida Gwaii Pledge at haidagwaiipledge.ca. Recollections is produced by Parks Canada. Our consulting producer is Skalawas Camille Collinson. A big thank you to Jiskang Nika Collison, Skan Kwaagang, James McGuire, Kieljuice, Iwaji Ithlanong, Paul Rosang, Jenny Cohen, Daryl Fedji, Gitiaki, Sean Young, Stephanie Fung, Sat Lindane, the Haida Gwaii Museum, and the Gwaihanas Archipelago Management Board. To get the latest on the Living Landscapes Archaeology Project, follow the Guayhanas Facebook page. You can also visit parks.canada.ca slash recollections for show notes and a documentary video of the Living Landscapes Project. I'm Fred Shepard. Thanks for listening.